0: Look how stuff works out. I mean, is this weird or what? I mean, sometimes stuff happens and you have to step back for a moment and go, well, that was a weird coincidence. I mentioned in a previous episode that I received a Facebook message from one of our podcast family members requesting more gynecological topics. As you all know, I'm very OB friendly. I like that world more than the gynecology part. But hey, sometimes we show gynecology some love. We've done that recently. Just our last couple of episodes dealt with gynecological topics. Well, you open up the gates and all the water starts to flow. I mean, it's wild, right? Somebody asked for it. And now there's this slew of new publications in the world of gynecology that are a little controversial, we'll say, and super interesting. Listen to the podcast we released just two podcast episodes ago. I think it was two. Yeah, it was (laughs) about birth control pills and depression. All right. Super controversial. Well, just yesterday on June the 14th, 2023, a new publication was also released that's also made its way onto the mainstream media circles. This was published out of the journal Science Translational Medicine. Uh, And so if your first question is, what the heck is that? Don't worry about it. It's legit. Trust me, there's good articles in it. But this publication, which has to do with gynecology, possibly, possibly has now just introduced into the world of of gynecology of gynecology and women's health has now introduced a new possible origin theory for endometriosis. And it's not what you think. It's not hormonal and it has nothing to do with peritoneal metaplasia but it has everything to do with the vaginal microbiome and the uterine microbiome. Well, wait a minute, isn't the uterus sterile? No, it's not because every cavity has a microbiome, including the uterine cavity. So, this is a big deal. It is super interesting because if this actually carries water, and again, it's already making its way through the mainstream media and the medical media websites, we could potentially have a whole new way to target endometriosis to prevent its progression. It's wild. It's interesting, and it's the topic of this episode. So in this episode, we're going to cover fusobacterium infection and its facilitation for the development of endometriosis, quote, through the phenotypic transition of endometrial fibroblasts, end quote. That's a lot of words, and it's super sciency, but we're going to make it super clinical (laughs) in this episode. So let's cover this new publication from just June the 14th, 2023. (music) This is Cade. I'm a third-year medical student at Texas A&M University. I'm Kimia. I'm an undergraduate student at Texas A&M University. And, and this, this is, is Clinical, Clinical Pearls. Pearls. Endometriosis is caused by endometrial-like tissue containing endometrial glands and stroma, and extensive fibrotic tissue when it grows outside of the endometrial cavity, most often in the pelvic peritoneum, the ovaries, or both. This results in chronic pelvic pain and infertility. It's been estimated to occur in up to 10 to 15% of women of reproductive age. There's three main theories that have supported the origins of endometriosis, and the most likely to be true is one called Samson's theory. This is nothing new. I mean, this was first thought of in 1927. Samson's theory states that three elements are required to cause endometriosis, retrograde menstruation, the presence of viable cells within that retrograde fluid and the implantation of those viable endometrial cells outside of the endometrial cavity that continue to grow and form peritoneal lesions. I mean, this makes sense, right? I've done laparoscopy in patients that are menstruating and you're like, oh, look, old hemolyzed blood. I mean, there's no reason to think that blood in the endometrial cavity can't come out of the tubes. We know that it does happen because you can see it happen. I mean, the tubes and the cavity are obviously connected like ear, nose, and throat, uh, cervix, uterus, and fallopian tubes. I mean, it's all one conduit. Now, yes, the tubal ostia do have some reflex spasm to try to keep things out of the tubal lumen, but we know by both history and proven in multiple studies uh, and by surgical models that this actually does happen. So Samson's theory, just remember, is the one about retrograde menstruation. But here's the catch. While that makes sense, and while retrograde menstruation likely happens in almost all women, why do not all women develop endometriosis? So there's got to be something else to this story. And yes, genetics are a big part of that. Yes, epigenetic changes and innate immunity uh, ca- capabilities are all different based on individual levels. But now this new publication that's coming out likely gives us the the true why, which is, well, if menstru- retrograde menstruation happens in all women, why do some women develop this outside of genetics and those epigenetic things and the other things that we talked about? Why do some women develop this and some do not. This study is super interesting but before we do that let's cover the two other theories for endometriosis. The first one was Samson's theory. The second theory for the origin of endometriosis is Meyer's theory and again this is a super old one as well. Meyer's theory states that cells that have the potential to become endometrial cells are actually present in the abdomen At birth, they just kind of hang out and are quiet. And then, for some other reason, whether it's hormonal influences or innate uh, immunological uh, environments and milieu, they then transform into endometrial cells. So, this is the metaplasia theory by Meyer, M E Y E R, Meyer's theory. Okay, both of those make sense. That seems reasonable. But here's a tricky issue How do you explain endometriosis that happens? outside of the pelvis. I mean, this can happen, right? You can get endometrial implants on the perineal body. It can happen um, on the diaphragm. It can happen in the lung. Uh, it's showed up in weird places, all right, where you're like, oh, that doesn't really fit retrograde menstruation, but whatever. Well, that's where hall theory comes in. Hallband's theory states that look, somewhere, somehow, some endometrial cells get into the vasculature of the of the myometrium and then circulate and then implant at distant sites. Okay? So Hallband's is the transportation theory that distant lesions are established either by lymphatic spread or of hematogenous spread of these viable endometrial cells to other parts of the body. All right, so we got Samson, we got Meyer, and then we got Hallban. The truth is, if you notice, we said those are three theories and i love how people just take a theory and make it dogma right this is how endometriosis occurs uh we don't know that it sounds good it's possibly true it does have some scientific merit to it but there's definitely not one proven way that we know this happens but now we've got more info and i don't want to get there yet but this is where this new publication is super exciting and also kind of weird because there are some gaps with this publication so I love how we, we advance it we take a little step forward and then maybe two back a little step forward and then two back but all the way we're still moving to the front because it once we go over this publication and you go wow that's super interesting I dig it I believe it this is real uh, What do we do with that? And where do we intervene? Is there a specific time where if you don't treat for this bacteria, uh, it's all over? Or does this have some kind of treatment for stage 3 and stage 4 endo? Could this help reverse this in a non-hormonal way? We don't know that. So I want to be very clear. This is exciting new information on endometriosis relating to its pathogenesis, how it likely starts and develops. But it doesn't really give us that much into treatment. There is a part in there. Uh, where some of the subjects were treated and they got better. But there's one catch to who those subjects were because they were not people. So let me just spoil it there. <laughs> These are the little mice. But still, there the, is good info, so don't turn off the podcast like mice. Come on, man. No, th- this publication was done in people, but then they try to replicate this in a mouse model with some super interesting results. All right. So those are all little teasers, but I just wanted to review the three main theories for endometriosis. All right, podcast family, let me just take a quick break from our little script here and from my, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine different tabs that I have up on my computer as we're getting ready to go through all this info. Uh, man, for the last, I think, two to three episodes, we've given some reviews that have been on the heels of publication, right, within 24 hours or max 48 hours after something comes out. Um, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I love doing this. I love the podcast. I love our team. Um, it's just wild. It's just right now, there's a lot of stuff hot, and, and our commitment is to get things out quickly. Um, but let me just give you a little preview of, our, of my day. Can I, can I Can just editorialize for a moment? I'm going to get to the article. Don't worry about it. Hold on, guys. Hold on. Um, uh, it's this. I started in the morning. Right? We had a suction DNC. We had a patient on mag. We rounded with the residents. We've got two medical students with us. Uh, I'm am just came, I just got to the medical school, left the hospital. I'm here for a medical student conference. Uh, and then we're doing this kind of in between stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Now it's not, I'm not complaining. Um, and, and nor is it a, a, ooh, look at me kind of thing. I'm just saying, man, if you kind of stop and take a breath, which is what I'm trying to do right now, uh, yeah, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, I think I need a vacation. I think I have a vacation coming up next month. So there may be a little delay there in getting our next podcast episode next month. And I'll tell you when I'm doing that. But uh, yeah, I'm going to get this one out because it's super exciting and this is really neat and we've got to do something on VTE. But hmm, I may need a little hiatus. And don't worry, guys, my hiatus is like three days, right? That's like, the chop a hiatus because then I get bored and I gotta get back to another episode. All to say, not complaining. I just wanted to let you know this this is kind of how my day goes. Totally self afflicted. Uh, I get that. And thankfully i have got a family who puts up with this stuff to to do this crazy schedule. All right, that's done with the editorial. Let's get back to the message. <laughs> This new publication from June the 14th, 2023 comes out of a very science journal and a very science-y group. And I mean science not in a bad way. But remember, some publications are very scientific, right? Almost like a basic science. They're immunology, micro-based, that kind of stuff with clinical implications. And then there's the purely clinical articles. Uh, it's no surprise I like the truly clinical articles. I mean, to me, a great publication is super easy, right? Tell me what you're looking for. Tell me how you're going to look for it. That gives us the strength of the study, right? The the, the rigorousness, it, it, it stand-up to scientific scrutiny. Tell me what you found and then what it means clinically. That's it. Four things any paper should have. What are you looking for? How did you do it? Was it well-controlled or stratified? what you found, and what does it mean clinically. That's it. But sometimes the basic science papers are very voluminous, got a lot of words in it, and you got to dig stuff out. This is one of those papers. Now, I'm not, that's not a jab. Again, it's it's totally has clinical implications, and it was done in people, so don't worry. It's not just based on little rats and little mice, um, but it's 18 pages long. So yeah, I got this alert like at 3 in the morning, uh, woke up early. I'm going through it with a highlighter and I'm like, wow, okay, basic science, basic science, basic science. Uh, and, and then, so I pulled out the clinical stuff to make this episode, all right? But if you're interested, it is out of Science Translational Medicine just from yesterday because we're taping this on 615. This was on 614, 2023. And the name of the article is Fusobacterium Infection Facilitates the Development of Endometriosis Through the Phenotemic Transition of endometrial fibroblasts. Already you're like, yep. That's definitely basic scientists. Uh, and I don't know if these, uh, these people are physicians. I don't think they are. This is a Japanese uh, publication. These are all Japanese researchers. And I, they, it reads totally PhD-ish, okay? And again, nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm just saying, you, you can tell when somebody writes from a clinical perspective or from an academic scientific perspective, and this was definitely written in that later camp as the academic basic science genre, if I've already lost you with fusy Bacteria, don't worry about it. We're going to get into that. And we're going to get into how this, this study was done because it really was a pretty neat design. They did some remarkable stuff here in women with endometriosis, right? So this isn't speculative like, oh, you've got pelvic pain, maybe you have endo. No, these are in women who had surgery for endometriosis and had a hysterectomy, all right? They had known lesions, they sampled the lesion, and then they compared the lesion itself to the the endometrial cavity in the hysterectomized patients all right so this is true tissue in vivo studies uh, that we're going to get into and what they found but let's cover fusobacterium real quick these are species of bacteria that are opportunistic pathogens and they live on our body okay they're not foreign to us they typically live in the oral cavity and in the gi tract and even in the gu tract so they live in the vagina of women so remember the key word there, they are opportunistic pathogens. They're not straight up pathogens, right? So they're not bad guys all the time. They kind of hang out. They are part of the normal flora, right? So Fusobacterium is a typical bacteria that's part of the microbiota. But given a chance, it's going to go but wild, all right? So Fusobacterium is an opportunistic pathogen, not foreign. It does live as part of our microbiota in the oral cavity, GI tract, and in the female genital tract. As these authors of this new june twenty twenty-three publication state, quote, although the uterine cavity is believed to be almost sterile, a close association between endometriosis and endometritis has been reported. End quote. Now, it's not that endometritis or PID is going to lead to endometriosis, but the idea is, is that bacteria live in the endometrial cavity, in the uterine cavity, and through some dysbiosis or through some changes of the cells uh, in the uterine cavity due to this inflammatory response, these cells could then go rogue. All right. So this publication talking about Fusibacterium, which had some super novel findings that we're going to get into in just a minute, is not the first one to, to break this Ice, all right there's been others to go hey there's a uterine microbiome maybe this has origins and other things like endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain so this is not the first one to do that but it's the first one that has taken the findings this far i'll post the reference to that previous publication that showed intrauterine microbial colonization with the presence of endo on our reference sheet but that author was con and it was published in human reproduction back in 2014 So look at that. We go from 2014 to 2023. um, And look how, again, how evidence grows and it adapts and it keeps building. Now, in this case, it's been close to 10 years. But again, this is nothing new. They've just expanded on this. And now we know a lot more because of this publication. These authors had two different study populations. The first was actually in human subjects. And then the second one to see if they could actually reproduce what they found in the human participants was in mice models. Right. But here's how they did the human trial study. They took 76 patients, 76, 76, without endometriosis and 79, that's 79, who actually had endometriosis and all of these patients, whether they had endo or not, underwent hysterectomy. All right. So, what they did is in the patients who had endometriosis as a known diagnosis, they compared samples of the endometrial implants in the pelvis to the actual endometrial cavity and the endometrial tissue in the uterus itself. Remember, this is all in block. This is in, in an entire uterine model. So, it's not by EMB or just by sampling. They all had hysterectomy with endometriotic lesions. So, they're able to compare what is in the endometriotic lesion itself to see if it's also in the endometrial cavity. As the authors describe as this typical custom in that institution, because the uterus is retained during the surgical treatment in younger women for possible future pregnancies, the median age of the patients that underwent hysterectomy for endometriosis was greater than 40 years of age. All right, so those are those with endo. But in the other group, in the control group without endometriosis, patients had undergone surgery for for adenomyosis, cervical dysplasia, or cervical cancer, and had no known history of endometriosis. So those are our two comparison groups. Everybody had surgery, uh, everybody had uh, hysterectomies, but one camp had no endo, and the other group did not. Okay, fine. So total, it was 155 Japanese women in this one institution. Now, why did they pick on Fusobacterium? I mean, why this bacteria? Let me explain exactly why they did that. Through the exact words of their manuscript. So, this is what they have verbatim. Quote, Recent highly sensitive 16S ribosomal RNA, see, told you, basic sciences, gene amplification sequencing has demonstrated that although the amount of bacteria in the uterus is about four orders of magnitude less, that's a lot less, right? Four orders of magnitude less than the amount in the vagina, certain microbial communities, including members of the Fusobacterium genus, can be detected. They go on to say, although members of the Fusobacterium genus have long been considered to be opportunistic pathogens, recent studies revealed that some Fusobacterium species, like Fusobacteria nucleotum, play an important role not only in periodontal disease, but also in carcinogenesis via induction of several inflammatory cytokines, including interleukin-6, interleukin-8, and tumor necrosis factor, end quote. So let's stop there for a minute. That's why they focus on this bacteria, because it already has kind of a bad rap, right? It has been found in certain kinds of, of cancers uh, in terms of pathogenesis and promotion. Crazy, right? And because it's very pro-inflammatory and endometriosis is known to be a pro-inflammatory state, that's why they said maybe there's something here. We know it lives in the vagina. We know it can be found in the uterus, Maybe it's found in higher concentrations in women with endometriosis. And so maybe this is the behind-the-scenes occurrence, the behind-the-scenes uh, the behind the events behind Samson's theory. So first you get the fusobacterium in the vagina, then it becomes colonizing to the uterine cavity, it triggers this cascade, and then it makes that abnormal uh, retrograde menstruation somehow more pathogenic. That's the theory. And the results are pretty supportive of that, right? But that's why they focus on fusobacterium. Having said that, now let's go into what they actually found when they looked at the human uh, subjects and then how they try to replicate that in mice. Okay, let's get to the main results here. In this study of 155 women, Fusobacterium was found in the uteri of around 64% of those with endometriosis compared to only 7% of those patients without endo. Those are striking differences, guys. Y'all get that? So those who had known endometriosis, I mean, they've got lesions, 64% had this bacteria in their endometrial cavity compared to 7% of controls. That's pretty surprising. This result highlights growing interest in the potential role of microbes in endometriosis. And again, this isn't anything new. This idea has been around for close to a decade. To see whether fusobacterium could affect the course of endometriosis directly, these researchers then transplanted endometrial tissue from one set of mice into the abdominal cavity of another. All right, so hold on a minute. We just left our human part, our human participants. Now we're going to our our, our mouse model, okay? But this is pretty ingenious, so watch what they did. All right, so I got a little mouse with endo and then transferred some endometrial implants to another little mouse without endo all right and here's what happened well within weeks endometriotic lesions formed in the recipient mouse okay we get that and using this model though the researchers found that lesions tended to be more abundant and larger and more aggressive in the mice that also were inoculated with Fusobacterium. bacterium So in other words, there's something with this bacterium that takes the blood that's placed into the pelvis and makes it adhere and makes it go nuts. Do y'all get that? That was the missing link that Samson couldn't figure out. So remember, Samson theory said, hey, look, blood goes out of the tubes, ends up in the pelvis, and then something happens. I'm not sure why some women, that blood becomes uh, pathological. It becomes adherent, Uh, becomes pissed off, while in others, it doesn't. Well now this publication seems to provide the answer. And that's because fusobacterium does stuff to the to the material in the blood that makes it adhesive and virulent. Like I don't believe that, man. What what kind of stuff is in there? Oh I'm gonna tell you, hold on. And it's very basic science-y, so let's cover that next. All right, why would this bacteria be doing this? I mean what is its nature i mean does this even make sense the answer is oh yeah it does and let me explain this all right so this new study the one that we're talking about this new publication obviously suggests that fusobacterium is the triggering factor that takes that migrating blood and pisses it off right transforms it into something well is there any evidence that it can do that the answer is yes Fusobacterium triggers a transformation in endometrial fibroblasts. All right, guys? So remember the F in Fusobacterium and the F in fibroblast. So here's, here's what's happening. In that menstrual debris, there's fibroblasts that normally don't do anything. But when it's mixed with the presence of Fusobacterium, specifically Fusobacterium, Nucleotum, that's the one that's responsible for this. It transforms those fibroblasts into myofibroblasts. You're like, "Uh, uh, what? And and what, what does that matter? Well, these myofibroblasts are actually aggressive and adhesive and allow for tissue penetration. Wow. So, this bacteria, Fusobacterium, can actually transform fibroblasts by releasing and augmenting transforming growth factor beta. See, I told you it's basic science So here's what's going on. In the endometrium, fusobacterium sees fibroblasts. It says you become bad <laughs> and do that by transforming growth factor beta and become myofibroblasts and express this other protein called transgelin, T-R-A-N-S-G-E-L-I-N. You got to look that up on your own time. But the short of it is this is an adhesive molecule that basically makes these myoepithelial cells, these myofibroblasts uh, pissed off and makes them in bed crazy so here's the idea again this specific kind of fusobacterium fusobacterium nucleatum, could be this triggering issue that makes the immune response around these implants respond in such a way that it doesn't allow them to be degraded but rather allows them then to take hold to root and to multiply so here's what this sequence of events could potentially look like if this is really what's happening and it seems to be based on this data So there's retrograde menstruation. That, coupled with the presence of fusobacterium in the uterine cavity, makes the fibroblasts in that retrograde menstruation more aggressive and more implantable. And boom, there you have endometriosis. So now let's take that one step further because the researchers then said, all right, I think it's fusobacterium that's making the retrograde menstruation do what it does. So if it's a bacteria, you would think what? Well, giving it antibiotics that targets the bacteria, maybe it reduces implants. Wow, so that's novel because normally we've been treating endometriosis how with hormonal agents, right? Either reducing hormonal exposure or increasing hormonal exposure. But what if it's an antibiotic-driven response? So these researchers then treated the mice with antibiotics, specifically the combination of metronidazole and chloramphenicol. Now, these were administered vaginally, and what they found is they actually reduced endometriotic implants and shrank the number and size of lesions. Did you all get that? What? So metronidazole and chloramphenicol reduced endometriotic lesions. I know that sounds crazy, but they're not the only ones to have done that. Back in 2019 in human reproduction, researchers demonstrated that metronidazole actually could help curve endometriosis in another animal model. There's actually a registered human clinical trial at clinicaltrials.gov called, quote, the use of low-dose metronidazole to decrease post-op pain after endometriosis surgery, end quote. Now, I can't find any of the results of the study, which tells me that it's still in progress or they bailed on it for some reason, but it's still on clinicaltrials.gov, and I'll post the link to that study description on our reference sheet. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that Pretty exciting. I mean, for the first time, we're actually thinking that antibiotics could help reduce endo and not only like treat symptoms, but we're talking about reduced lesions. Now remember, not ready for prime time yet. Don't go writing for chloramphenicol and metronidazole just yet because human studies are being planned right now, but this is super exciting, all right? I'm still all favor for the new GNRH agonists and antagonists and all that stuff, but maybe we're thinking about this the wrong way because this study says, guys, we're not attacking its root cause, which is fusobacterium which brings me to my next point. As we get ready to wrap this up, there are some gaps here that remain despite these incredible and eye-opening findings. First of all, this association between bacterium and endometriosis has to be studied in a more diverse population, not just in Japanese women. So that's coming, but that is one of the big limitations right now. Another big limitation of this publication is that the authors really focused on ovarian endometriomas, but in people, of course, lesions can happen anywhere in the body, like on the colon and the bladder, along the pelvic sidewall. So while it still gives great info, there are these gaps that just weren't answered by this publication. And most importantly, as for clinical application, clinical studies are still required to figure out whether treatment with antibiotics against this bacteria truly does represent a unique and effective treatment for patients with endo. And the question is, when do patients get treated with this? When it's early on in disease, like stage one endo? Does it work with moderate to severe endo? Does it work with stage four endo? And how much regression can actually happen? We don't know that yet. So once again, I have to be very clear don't go writing for flagellin chloramphenicol just right now. But I think this is an exciting new door that's opened. And this has made its way again on media channels like, oh, endometriosis is caused by bacteria. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on there. Hold on there. It, it's possible. It looks like it. There's definitely some scientific and microbiological information that says that, but we still have gaps that need to be closed here. Super exciting. I think this is the future of endometriosis uh, interventions and research and data that's coming, but right now we're not quite ready for prime time. But nonetheless, we wanted to get this podcast out within 24 hours of this article's release, and that's what we've done. All right, podcast family, I need to get home before my wife changes the locks on the door. Uh, But I have enjoyed this time together. I mean, is this wild or what? Come on, guys. This is pretty darn interesting. And it's hot, hot off the press. I mean, smoking hot. All right, I got to stop. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.